What's happening, weirdos? Uh, first and foremost, sorry this is dropping a little bit late. Uh, had a weird, had a late night, not a weird night, a good night last night. Couldn't record the intro, blah, blah, blah. Here we are. Sorry for the delay. This is Tara Brock, uh, one of the most influential Buddhist mindfulness teachers for both me and Val. Her books, her lectures, her talks, and her meditations, her guided meditations, have both been huge game changers for us. And this chat, I believe I say this, just filled the room with the frequency of thick, beautiful love. I I really needed it the day we recorded it, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Val joins as the co, uh, co-host uh, because she's such a fan, and I'm so glad she did. So you'll hear Val uh, come in. Uh, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes into the into the chat. So if you love this show and you want to show your support, it always means a lot if you guys try one of the Pete's Picks. I'm so happy that Ned & Co. is one of our newer Pete's Picks. I literally just took some of their new Magnesium Super Blend, which is called Mellow. Mellow supports over 300 functions in the body. I love what it does to help me with focus, productivity, and relaxation, but specifically it helps me calm down. I was feeling a little bit stressed, a little bit spread too thin, and I just added uh, a packet of Mellow into my tea. Uh, Just before I did this intro, it's become part of my tool belt, part of my arsenal, another secret weapon. Not only their mellow, their magne- uh, magnesium, excuse me, magnesium super blend is a part of my new daily routine and I'm not going back. I love it. Ned is also a purveyor of great quality CBD. They know their farmers. <laughs> it's not 150 acres of GMO corn and also like a little patch of CBD. They found exclusive Hardcore, dedicated, into it, small farm CBD growers in Denver that are all about the plant, playing the music and worm beds and recycling the soil, all this stuff that I don't exactly understand, but they care and love these plants, and that care and that love comes through in their product. Not only does it make uh, the feeling, meaning the, the perception of the CBD is wonderful and clean, but the taste is wonderful and clean. They have third-party lab reports uh, for, for their farmers. Uh, they, they're careful uh, observing the cold extraction process. Everything is transparent and above board and wonderful. They sent me a bunch of Ned CBD. It's very simple. It's just mixed with a little MCT oil. Tastes super clean. And as I said in the previous ad, It's just a real secret weapon. It puts a little bit of a smile behind my face. It helps me ease into whatever I'm trying to do, if that's read or work or get something done or do a podcast. But if I just feel that edge, there's just something a little bit off. CBD and Ned & Co. CBD has been such a secret weapon for me. It's mood elevating. It's stress reducing. This is just for me. Anecdotally, I've always called CBD my happy juice. It doesn't get you stoned or high. That's a common misconception with CBD. It doesn't take you out of the game. You can still focus and work. It just helps you, as I said, surrender and merge with whatever you're doing, including if you're trying to relax. When I take it with the mellow, as I said, magnesium supports over 300 function in the body, functions in the body. 
It is a wonderful power duo. Uh, I took Mellow for the first time and a little bit of the Ned's, Ned & Co. CBD before bed, and I fell asleep in under five minutes. Just for the first time in a long time. Just that would be enough. But daytime use, adding it to my morning routine, again, just sort of softens the edge of my day and what I have to get done. So it is really powerful, really wonderful, and it's a great way to show your support of the show and to support your body. So go to helloned.com slash weird or enter weird at checkout for 15% off your first one-time purchase and 20% off your first subscription order. That's helloned.com slash weird or enter promo code weird at checkout 15% off your first one-time purchase, 20% off your first subscription order, and show your support of this podcast and your body and your mind. It's really, truly wonderful stuff. Speaking of, right here on the desk, I don't know why I always bang these products on the desk, but I want to uh, emphasize and stress how it's true. These Pete's Picks are things that I love and I'm holding in my hands right now my ultimate ears, my UE Fits. Uh, true wireless custom fit earbuds from Ultimate Ears that are here to change the game. I don't know uh, much about your ear canal. It would be weird if I did. But if you're like me, it's really hard to find uh, in-ear earbuds that fit, that stay put, that are comfortable for hours and hold a charge for hours, that are going to stay in on a hike, that are going to stay comfortable. Really, my problem isn't staying in, it's staying comfortable. My, my buds, I'll wedge them in and they'll stay. But if I'm listening to a podcast three quarters of the way through, I'm going to take it out and put it over a speaker, which I don't like listening to a podcast over a speaker. I want earbuds. It's a, it's a personal experience and I want it going directly into my head. So enter UE Fits. Here to fix all of these problems. We rely so much on our on our technology. Uh, whether you're listening to podcasts or watching movies or making phone calls or just want to listen to great sounding music, UE Fits is literally custom. You get them. The unboxing is awesome. You put this sort of vague shape in your ear. They heat up with blue light, and it it's sort of like putting in a uh, 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 what's it called. Earplugs. You know how if you roll up an earplug and put it in your ear and it kind of goes, like expands to fit your ear? That's what UE Fits do. They use this blue light technology that makes the earbuds into the shape of your ear. It's incredible. The first thing I listened to was obviously The National or, or Serpentine Prison, which is Matt Berninger from The National. And the bass and the balance and the quality was incredible. I've started making my phone calls on them because, like I said, they are the most comfortable earbuds I've ever used. Not only premium sound, but we're talking all-day comfort. You get a guaranteed perfect fit in 60 seconds. It's kind of the coolest part. You can look in the mirror and see the blue light heating them up. UE Fits will stay put when you're on the go, but feel ultra comfortable so you can wear them all day long without pain or discomfort. Like I said, groundbreaking light form technology. UE Fits molds to the unique contours of your ear. This is super cool. You put them in, connect to the app, and watch the purple. I, I saw it as blue. It's purple. <laughs> LEDs form to the earbuds. Uh, to form the earbuds to your unique shape. With eight hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, UE Fits are perfect for listening to your favorite shows like this one all day long. Built on industry-leading expertise trusted by pro musicians and hi-fi enthusiasts for over 25 years, these are engineered to provide a full, warm sound 
with a tight, punchy low end. You can set custom EQ presets through the through the app as well. You can play and pause and answer calls with the built-in controls and use the free app to set custom actions like voice assistant, volume adjustment, and more. Before UE fits, you'd have to spend thousands of dollars and schedule a frustrating, time-consuming procedure if you wanted premium sound and a custom molded fit. But now you can go to the same company that would do that, but do it on a consumer level. You can get earbuds that are precisely fitted to your ears in 60 seconds for a fraction of the price. If you try them and you don't love them as much as I do, no worries. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee, plus free shipping, free returns, and a one-year warranty. This is uh, one we... I got some from the company. We loved them so much. I used the promo code to order Val a second pair. That's how much I love them. Uh, so I use this promo code. If you want to use this promo code and show your support of the show, for a limited time, you get 15% off your pair of UE Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code WEIRD at checkout. That's 15% off with promo code WEIRD at ue.com slash fits and show your support of this show. Last but not least, boy, Val Val was talking about how much she loves Liquid IV, the hydration multiplier, and she was specifically saying that when she gets thirsty, it's way too late. Like her body, she always forgets to drink water, and then suddenly she just hits a wall, and she's 10 out of 10 dehydrated, and she's so glad that we have Liquid IV in the house now because she drinks it, and in a matter of minutes, she feels completely normal and restabilized. We all know hydration is so important. I love it after a sauna, after a, a, a hike. I certainly loved it whenever I feel like I'm getting a cold or something like that, and I just want to flush my body with good, helpful hydration. Liquid IV is a part of our daily routine. It's great after workouts. They have tons of testimonials that say it's great for helping with hangovers, and it's just great when I'm sitting down to work and I want my body running smoothly and clearly. Hydration has always been one of the best secrets to overall wellness and a clear, sharp mind, and Liquid IV is here to multiply hydration. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water gets you two to three times the amount of hydration as that water plain. One serving, two to three bottles. It's incredible. Contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana. Suck it, banana. Healthier than sugary sports drinks. There's no artificial flavors or preservatives and less sugar than an apple. And it's made with clean ingredients. It's non-GMO, it's vegan, and it's free of gluten, dairy, and soy. Liquid IV has incredible hydration flavors like watermelon, lemon, lime, and passion fruit. And they recently launched strawberry, which is like a fresh juicy strawberry with a decadent note of whipped cream. I can't, I don't know how they did it, but that's really what it tastes like and it tastes incredible. What makes it so effective? It's cellular transport technology, CTT. It's an optimum ratio of glucose, sodium, and potassium delivers water and nutrients directly into the bloodstream. It helps get the water where it needs to go. Perfect balance to help you hydrate more quickly and effectively than water alone. One stick, two to three bottles of water. I mean, that's really all I should have to say. One stick, two to three bottles of water, and it tastes fantastic. It's also on a Liquid IV is on a mission to change the world. The company is donating four million servings in response to COVID-19. Products are being donated to hospitals, first responders, food banks, veterans, and active military. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 10 million servings globally. With each purchase you make, 
they will donate a serving to someone in need around the world. Disaster zones, hospitals, impoverished communities. It's a great company with a great message and a great product. So grab your strawberry liquid IV or other great flavors in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WEIRD at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you use promo code WEIRD at liquidiv.com. Get better hydration today and show your support of this podcast at liquidiv.com and be sure to use promo code WEIRD for 25% off. All right, guys. Enjoy the incredible Tara Brock. This, this, Like I said, this chat was trans, transported. It transported us to a wonderful, gooey, loving heart space. And I really, really hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Here is Tara Brock. Get into it. Hello. Hey, hi. Hi. I can't see anything yet. <laughs> OMG. Give it time. Uh, do, you, do you see Katie? It, it, it looks as if I just got eye drops put in and I'm at the you know optometrist and it's just everything's a blur. But I can see <laughs> like I can see heads kind of. <laughs> That's all you need. Ah, ah, you just came into how lovely. Hi, Tara. How are you? What a pleasure. Good to see you. So it's 8.30 oh, in the think, morning. Uh, it is 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> Val will be joining us in 30 minutes, and I bet she'll be spruced up and uh, nicely looking. And I, I just jump right on. <laughs> so I probably look like a person... I've been up since... Uh, well, that's why I said it's well, 8. Yeah, I figured you would just kind of roll that a bit. No, I'm no, joking, joking. You look, you look, well, the baby, we have a baby that, that she's been up since probably 6. And then she like kicked and rolled all over us until about 7, which is when we got out of bed. Well, that's a lovely And then, so I, we've been up for a while. What a nice way to enter the day. It's a lovely what? Around in bed. It's a lovely way to enter the day, you know. Absolutely no complaints whatsoever. And how how is your day going? I I really wanted to ask you that question. It sounds just like a trite question, but I woke up and I just was like, "Wow, I re- I'm really excited to talk to Tara," because I had one of those mornings where, for some reason, you know, the Rubik's cubes of thoughts that you can be confronted with first thing, they were just the wrong ones. Meaning. Obviously, they weren't the wrong ones. They just weren't the ones I wanted. They were thoughts of, like, stress. They were thoughts of, like, it's going to be a bad day. And you know how the the brain likes to do that. It's like, not not only is this morning not what you want, but the whole day is fucked. You're fucked. And, that, and I sort of felt that behind the eight ball feeling. And honestly, my second thought was, I know you're a, a, a spiritual teacher and all these things, but Tara... You're not immune to this. You must wake up some mornings and just be like, "Wow, the 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 needle went on the record at like a really wonky part, and I have to overcome this." And I was wondering if that does that. Do you relate to that? Not only do I relate, I just look. I mean, this morning, the first first experience of consciousness was some sort of a clutching feeling in my heart, like something bad was going to happen. You know, wow. and um, wow. but what I do is. Immediately I go, it's cortisol. It's just the way the cortisol, uh, you know, 
is peaks and, and goes down because we're supposed to like early in the morning have it, it starts peaking and we get more stressed and everybody and so many people have that like dread of the day before mm. not, not, for no good reason, you know? Mm. So mm. as soon as I tell myself, Oh, it's just a chemical. <laughs> you know, that well, you were, I love that Val and I, who you're going to love, by the way. And I, I always forget to say thank you for doing this. Thank you for joining us. I'm such a bad host. I just start talking. But we were we were just talking about how the brain can't really come along on the journey. I know this is pretty deep to start right away. But there's this kind of phenomenon. Both of she and I were like surrendering to the idea that the day we die, we might have to earn it back. We might wake up and feel panic or feel despair or just not have a lot of faith or not a lot of connection, not really feeling in the flow of divine grace or whatever you want to say. And that's okay. Even the moment of death, your brain might be like, it's all bullshit. It's, it was all stupid. Like, because it's going through like, forget cortisol. It's having a huge survival mechanism. It's, it's panicking. It's trying to save you. It's trying to give you adrenaline and all of these things to get you out of the bed and, and live and that's a really hard place to go, like, just surrender. I, you probably know David Nickter, and he's like, it's like pushing out into the ocean further and further from the shore, and, and you just say yes to it, and, and you can die peacefully. But your body, I don't know if your body's ever going to, like, fully surrender. Just like you're saying, the cortisol in the morning, it's doing what it thinks you need for whatever reason. Maybe you could speak to that. Like, the brain isn't always going to be okay with whatever your spirit is is kind of evolving to does that make any sense it totally makes sense i mean we get hijacked and that's however you want to think about it our survival brain hijacks us all the time really i mean it happens all Mm -hmm. the time where in some way it seems like this organism is threatened and so then the question is how much lag time until something in us gets that that's what's going on rather than being completely identified and lost. <laughs> it, there's some little glimmer of that witness or whatever we want to call it that says, Oh, this is just the normal, you know, organismic survival brain hijack, you know? Yes. Yes. But in the moment that there's a little bit of recognition, Oh, that's what's happening. Then we start to inhabit something larger that's always there, but forgotten. And, you know, that's refuge. <laughs> that's, that's the mm. hope that we can, the remembering starts again. But mm. I'm with you. I feel like forgetting keeps happening. You know, it's been happening all along. There's less lag time. That's the best I can say. I you know what love I mean? that. I yeah. Yeah. love that. There's less lag time. Well, Sharon, who we, we love a lot of the same people, Jack Cornfield. Yeah, Cornfield and uh, Sharon and Sharon says meditating is the coming back. It's, it's like when you start thinking about a, a Chili's commercial from the eighties, that's not a flaw. The, meditating is actually the return. And, and Jack has very similar teachings as well, that it's like, it's okay to forget. Like that's, that seems to be part of it. Right. Just as natural as a flare up of cortisol is breathing in and breathing out, remembering, forgetting, remembering, forgetting seems to be sort of natural. But do do you run into a lot of people that are just like, I just want to lock it in like a Tetris piece. Like, I just want to go 
I I am not the body. I am not even the mind. I am perfect. I, every, I, I'm not writing the story. I am being written. I surrender. And then like <laughs> a dog barks at you and you're like, I don't want to die. <laughs> like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's frustrating, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would say that all of us do that that we all are trying to lock it in on some, everybody wants to have the permanent immediate refuge all the time available. So we don't have to worry about our mortality. I mean, I I think that's pretty universal that we all Mm. want, we want safe refuge. And, you know, the way I figure it is that we are designed to forget. I mean, if you look at, you know, just evolution that every organism arises it appears it takes form it thinks it's that its form it you know awareness identifies mm-hmm. with the form it goes into the whole constellation of defending and protecting and trying to enhance and then gradually just as it's natural to forget it's natural to remember that we are more than we're the waves but we're also the ocean that includes the waves so they both feel natural. Mm. And I think one of my um, critiques sometimes of the way traditional teachings go is inside them, there's some notion that it's a mistake. Like we're not supposed to have that hijack. We're not supposed to forget that it, mm. and that it's bad. Whereas it's just the nature of existence. <laughs> it's like, it's that basic mm. it's existence is part of forget. It's like Rumi says, whatever comes into being gets lost in being and drunkenly has to find its way home. You know, it's kind of like that. Mm. Yeah. Val and I say a lot, it's, it's not a flaw in the system. No. Meaning, well, I, you know, I know we, I think we both grew up in the Christian tradition and I used to think like, one of my first kind of weird out of the box thoughts was why not just start in heaven? Right. Why not just, <laughs> if, if, if like, that's what God wants. Cause remember the Christian, like the Christian idea of heaven that I was taught was that would all s- sit around like singing to God, like, like a big kirtan, I guess, like, and, yeah. and would just worship God. And he liked that. And I was like, well, if that's what he wants, just do that. Like why, why this test that like some people can fail, like, that that stinks. If like some people go to hell, that seems like a pretty perverse game to play. Just so some of us will sing to you. If you want us to sing to you, just have us sing to you. But then what I like about the Eastern traditions is, is there's, and a lot of mystic Christianity too, is there's an ownership of this. And, and we're sort of into that mindful place, like this not being a flaw, your emotions not being a flaw, your body not being a flaw, your fear not being a flaw. I forget somebody just pointed out, been getting a lot of mileage out of this lately is like anxiety is trying to help you. You know what I mean? It, it's not, it, it seems so unpleasant, but you realize it's kind of, it's a misguided friend. You know what I mean? It might be over flaring. It might be like freaking out when really, yeah. as Jack always says, I'm okay just now, <laughs> you know, right. but like, it's not your enemy. We sort of make it an enemy. Boy, I just gave you a lot. Did any of that resonate? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what I find so useful with anxiety is just to say internally, well, thank you for trying to protect me. You know, mm-hmm. I am okay right now, but just thank you because every emotion is intelligent, <laughs> I mean, every emotion is there 
in some way to further our survival and our existence. And so, and of course they get torqued and we have to wake up through them. But if we can just get to the fact that they're intended to be adaptive, they're intended to help us, and then bring compassion to where the hurt is, we find our way through. And, right. and I, I so much more and more, I, you know, have so many people say, well, here's where I'm stuck. And, and you get the sense of, if only this would go away, then I'd be in bliss, you know, then I would be really at home. And, you know, it's like those um, Tibetan tankas and so on, where they show right at the center, you see, you know, is the temple, is right the heart of the temple. And, but to get there, you have to go through these like animal headed goddesses. And they're, you know, they're really, they're like vicious, passionate, intense energies that it's actually part of the path to mm. open to. Like we have to open to all the, all the stuff we call the shadow that actually makes us whole. And we can't really even trust who we are if we haven't open to them and discovered that we're more. So, mm. so I really do feel like it's the grounds of the path to open to all these energies. It's so interesting. We've been talking so much about the unconscious. I, you might know the actual statistic. It, it's like 95% of our behavior is uh, motivated from the unconscious. It's like, and, and I say this all the time, but Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you'll call it fate. I got that from this wonderful book called Existential Kink, which is sitting right here. And her whole point in the book is is like trying to make friends with your unconscious. Uh, would you would you agree with that? There's really something awe-inspiring about the unconscious. It's not playing any game. It's not dressing anything up. If you want to have sex with your mother, boom, there it is. Like it's not yeah. it doesn't go through the filter of culture or appropriateness. It's just like, there it is. There's, you want to have sex with your mother and it's honest. And it's, it's almost like a, a deity inside of you. It's just this wall of everything that's ever happened to you with no lies. And I find it fairly easy to sort of not bow to it, but go like, holy shit, you deserve, you deserve some reverence and you're welcome here. Like, let's get don't overwhelm me, but give me a little bit, a little bit of those multi-headed beasts that we have to walk through. <laughs> well, it's kind of like that whole thing of, are you more dr driven or drawn to being comfortable or to waking up, you know, mm. because mm. it's really uncomfortable. And of course, if we've been traumatized, it's overwhelming and it's not even tolerable. But one of the images I like a whole lot, Pete, is this um, from Joseph Campbell. And he describes awareness as this big circle with a line going through. And he says, whatever, you know, is below the line is what's outside of awareness. And whatever is above the line is in awareness. And really what meditation does is it moves the line so that there's more and more you know, we're just more and more living in awareness. And the more we include, the more we know Again, I, I for me, ocean waves really does it that we're mm -hmm. we include the waves, but we are the ocean. And so, mm. and if you trust 
you're the ocean, you're not afraid of the waves. Um, and if you right. don't, and if you don't trust for the ocean, you'll get seasick every day. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. I, I love that. It, it's so funny. I, I feel like people have such a, or maybe an easier time. Let's take people out of it. I, Tara, I have an easier time looking out at others and going, it's all in the game. It's all in the game. There's a selfish person. There's a angry person. There's a lustful person. And I just go like, look at the dance. Look at the dance. It's okay. But when I have it, I go like, you are a dirty boy. <laughs> like It's just like, I... When you talk about going into meditation and a lot of things came to mind when you said like somebody offered that sometimes your brain is distracting you when you're meditating because it doesn't want you to, to incorporate this stuff. It's, it's actually trying to protect you. Uh, Again, you're, you're doing this work. You're uh, in my literally like trying to coax the unconscious out like a cat that's in a bush. I'm putting a little, tuna fish out for it and then my brain will start playing an episode of alf from 1986 (laughs) and i'm like what are you doing and it's not just i'm bad at meditating i think it's there's something in it going he doesn't know what he's doing if you let this in the whole thing falls apart he won't be able to ride the bus he won't be able to hold a job he won't be able to host a podcast because he'll be insane if we incorporate and love everything but can you give us a little hope that it's safe to incorporate and love ourselves? <laughs> Not if safety means that your whole ego and comfortability in the universe gets uh, sustained. I mean, it, it gets one of the ways that, again, science, I, I've been getting more and more into science. I find like science, the metaphors of science, like work so well on so much. Mm. And so, Okay, so we know that as soon as we're not occupied and on a specific task, uh, the default network goes, you know, it gets activated. And the default network in our brain basically has us going into the past and the future over and over again to resurrect a stable sense of a self, Mm. our familiar self. And so meditators say, well, why is my mind always wandering? Well, it's like, we're rigged to have a wandering mind. I mean, it is what preserves our sense of self and meditation undoes the sense of self. Mm. So it's not safe. You know, it's not safe according to the (laughs) ego that wants to stay comfortable and familiar. Yeah. But, but what happens is there's another piece to it, which is we also have this like um, intuition that we belong to something more. Each of us, because it's the truth, we have that as an intuitive knowing. We all have that wisdom. And so when we get tastes, um, it really motivates us mm. that, we, that we're more, we know we can't be at home in the ego because it's not the truth of who we are. So there's some real longing to go ahead and open to what feels edgy and we learn, as one of one teacher said, to meet our edge and soften, which is like that one has been so helpful to me. You know, just I, I remember I was in the hospital once and I had some we didn't know what was wrong with me. And um, and and I was having to let go of all sorts of work I've been doing and this and that because I was getting sicker and sicker. 
and I remember at one point with, with all the fear coming up and all the voices of what you're describing, the unconscious that was saying, well, this might be it, you know, and there's going to be an it sometime, there's going to be an end line, and here we are, you know, and, and all that I'd have to give up. And the mantra that worked was just meet your edge and soften, just keep opening, first open to the fear, and that opened me to the, the grief, like, oh, all this loss, and and then that opened me to, like, this infinite tender place but I, it wouldn't have happened if I didn't have some coaching that, as as we've been talking, that knows that it's only by moving the line, allowing what's unseen and unfelt in, that there was going to be some freedom. So. Like saying yes to the fear, to the dread. I mean, That's, it's really counterintuitive. Exactly right. The mantra that I use most often is, yes, thank you. I know I'm not the only one. That's not like unique to me, but like non-resistance might be too funky sounding, but just saying yes, thank you. Not just yes, but actually this like absurd, it's actually pretty funny. Like if you're, if you're dying, imagine greeting that with thank you. I can't, I can't, I can't imagine that. That's some high level stuff. But that is my hope. Isn't that absurd? We're two weirdos that are like, boy, I hope when I'm dying, I'm able to say like, because like having a child, you'll have like a thought of some tragedy or or you'll have um, unrelated to having a child, you'll have some weird, violent fantasy uh, patricide. You'll have a patricidal fantasy. And the only thing that seems to work is uh, Ramdas used to say, you treat them like, rambunctious children you don't you don't whip them you tussle their hair and you kiss them on the cheek and you send them back to the playground does that does that sound right to you yeah it's really that attitude and and there's different I find I call on different attitudes depending on what kind of a you know rambunctious child is up Um, and sometimes it's that it's gratitude it's like there was a Japanese nun who her mantra was Thank you for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. Tara, that I heard you guys, either you or Jack say that. And I have it on my phone as a reminder. It comes up every day as a reminder, exactly that line. And it's been. I love that line. I've loved. I mean, I first started, I first found out about it when my son was about seven or eight or nine. And I remember he was a whiner and a kvetcher, you know, like he really, you know. <laughs> and so I, so I would just say, I would just keep saying, honey, this, try this, try, you know, thank you for it. And, mm-hmm. and it seemed to not make a dent. But I remember one day going to the dentist and I was driving him and we hit, you know, the mother of all traffic jams and and I was white knuckling and, you know, and, and I, oh shit. Oh, and he, and he nudged me. He said, mama, thank you for everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he played that one back to me. <laughs> I'll never forgive him, but it helps me remember it. <laughs> oh my God. I, I mean, I can't think of a specific example, but Val and I, I mean, your partner is, is groovy. I mean, I have to think, I don't know much about him. But I know he's a yoga teacher. He's, he's wonderful. He he he's well. He's a meditation. He's a Dharma teacher, and oh, there you go. Really into embodied presence, and he's also um, keeps me entertained, which is 
you know, I would pay him for it, but he doesn't make me pay him. You know, really, <laughs> he really keeps, he keeps me in a good mood. Yeah. And I, what I, I bet he does this then, which is what Val and I will do. Sometimes it's almost always that the baby won't go down. The baby didn't go down until about 10 o'clock last night. And we always do it. It's never like neener, 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 like sort of like being a brat about it. But like, we love this Eckhart Tolle thing. I love it so much. He says when he's in line at the supermarket and it's just taking forever. I think this is one of the funniest things I've ever heard, but it's not even recognized as funny, but I think it's really funny. He goes, if I wasn't standing here, I'd be standing somewhere else. And I was like, that's the essence of the cosmic joke, I guess, or or just like humor. It's absurd that human beings are like, if I was standing somewhere else and and I'd be happy. You said it earlier. If only I had this, I'd be happy. And I find it to be the funniest way to put it. And I think it all the time. I'll be rocking Leela and she, you think she's asleep. I know you have kids. So it's like, you think she's asleep. And then she just wakes up a hundred percent and grabs your nose. And not only is it helpful to go like, if I wasn't sitting here, I'd be sitting somewhere else. Uh, literally on the couch, just watching TV. But I'm also, it wakes you up to the fact that you're holding your baby who will someday be 25 and think I'm a joke and not grab my nose anymore. Like, but it, it forces you to go like, would you comment on this? If you're not happy here and now, then, then you're what, who cares when you're happy later, how you, it's an Eckhart Tolle thing, but how you feel right now, is how you feel about your life. It's, it's, it's your life. This is your life. (laughs) Yeah. No, there's, it's, there's that, that saying, you know, how you live today is how you live your life. And whatever Mm. your habit is, we have this idea that we're just going to be different, but habits are strong. You know, Mm. Jonathan and I have a, a kind of routine where one of us will abruptly just stop the action, whatever's going on and pause and look at the other and say, this is it. (laughs) Mm. And then the other will say, no, this is it. And and then, no, no, this is it. You know, we'll go back and forth a few times until we've marked the moment. It's like we peed on time, you know, we've just marked it, you know, but, but it's, it's so deep in us to think we're on our way to something else. And that the real life is going to, it's like we're doing this interview and then we're going to be done, but then there's something that we're kind of on our way to. And it's actually incredibly rare to open up space time, you know, like really arrive, like this matters, this moment right now matters as much as anything in the universe. And if we don't get that, it's our habit not to get that. And Mm -hmm. I know for myself, just even, um, you know, just even saying it now with you, Pete, just, it's like my, my heart becomes more tender. I say, well, I don't know how many moments I'll have on the planet where you and I, you know, our, our paths are right here, you know, mm-hmm. are we going to race through? It's like racing, you know, racing on the surface and not really dropping in and feeling the ocean. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Uh- I love it too. I don't mean to cheapen it by making it a podcast technique, but there is some value when I'm talking to anybody and not just for a good podcast, but for a good moment, a good life, you remind them that we're alive at the same time. 
we're hurling on a space rock and it's a little dark, but like often the, the good way in is to be like, and we don't when when we die, you know, uh, memento moria, you're going to die. And, and that, I think one of our obsessions with that is the, well, the good alchemy of that, there's the fear of that, but then there's like Val and I always say, would ice cream taste good if you lived forever or would it matter that I'm talking to you? And, and you can sort of, take the moment from the 50 cent rack and put it in the jewelry case. You know, there's like a, like a real, when you're like, this is it, 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 this is it. It's like the ecstasy is right there. It's, it's, it's right there. We say just this all the time. Val and I say, we're doing it. Um, Those, those mantras help me so much. And they're not very woo woo. They're not, they're not theory. They're not like you, you are loving awareness. I enjoy that one. That, that's a, that's a, a yeah. beautiful concept. But if yeah. you just go, just, just this, I'd love to just put this in. I love when we concede atheists, theists, whatever, agnostics, we can all concede that we're in a mystery. That's yeah. what I feel like is missing from the conversation. That's a table everyone can eat at. Science can eat at that. Uh, people that have absolutely have been burned by religion can still say, what is this? And we're in the same foxhole is kind of dramatic. Like it's a, it's a negative thing, but we can concede Val's here. Hi mama. Hey. <laughs> hey. Here comes the mama. Welcome. Welcome. Yes. Hi. I'm so sorry. I'm late. Oh, I think the reason was good, I guess. <laughs> yeah, she's she's the queen of our lives. She runs everything. <laughs> totally understand. I spent I was uh, FaceTiming yesterday with my grands. I don't have but same same, same age, you know, about to turn 3. Mm. And you know, and so she she gave me a tour of the house and she took me around with the, you know, her iPhone. I was almost nauseous at the end because, you know, <laughs> you know she, <laughs> it was so fun to just get that hit, you know, the yeah. oxytocin. You know. Yes. It's such a fun age. When she FaceTimes with my mom, she insists on holding it and it's just her like <laughs> eyebrows and forehead. Which is the same as FaceTiming my mom. <laughs> right. It's usually she's FaceTiming her inner ear. <laughs> Yeah, the very the very old and the very young don't FaceTime is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> but talk about just just this. So Tara and I were just having a very beautiful moment of dropping anchor in mm-hmm. the present and going and she was saying with her partner that they go, This is it. And I was like, That's yeah. what even sometimes when we just sit down to watch a movie, we go, This is it. This this is this is th- we're doing it is you what say we're, we're say. doing it, yeah. We're doing it. Um or when Leela wouldn't go down last night, you know, there's the, I, I had that last night. I think I got up in the middle of the night with her and I had this beautiful sort of foggy realization that suffering is really stupid. <laughs> I, I, I obviously with love and respect, I suffer all the time, but in this moment I was like, okay, it's four in the morning and I'm rocking the baby. But if I, give in to that impulse to make a story. Well, now I'm going to be tired. It's going to ruin my day. Uh, I'm, I have that podcast at 11. I'm not going to be sharp. It's going to be bad. Uh, people are going to stop listening. Uh, I'm going to be destitute. Like 
that is insanity. Like that is absurd mm. delusion. Mm. Uh, as we love what Muji says, no one has ever experienced the, uh, the future they imagined. Like, it's like, why are you wasting your time? As a comedian, you're a public speaker. When I have a show at a college, usually like a non-traditional venue, I would imagine what the venue will look like. And sometimes when I'm falling asleep, they flash before my eyes. These weird wooden atriums that I think I'm going to be performing in. Uh, this strange beehive <laughs> stage. Like, they're absurd. They're, they're dreamlike. And none of them were real. So it was almost like, I'm not saying it was a waste of time, but it was sort of masochistic to go like, what if it, what if I'm upside down? What if I'm in anti-gravity boots and I'm doing a show <laughs> upside down and the whole audience has their back to me and I have a muzzle on like that Eckhart Tolle can get very funny and roasty. And he's like, that is insanity. It's not very gentle language, but I find it funny. He's like that, Let's just call it what it is. It's madness. Like, like, we don't know. And the day ends up being fine. Sometimes the mornings where I get up, I got up this morning. Poor Val didn't sleep much more than I did. Sometimes you have more energy. You don't know. Just, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about, I love Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan. And he was talking about the, the great surrender to God. He uses God language, which I think is beautiful. And he says, is to realize you're not writing the story, you're being written. Like, it, it, it's not really for you to control, it's for you to realize that you're already in the big show. Like, you don't have to earn your way into the big show, you are the big show, mm -hmm. and something else is sort of... Life is living you. Life is living you, life is breathing you. And you don't make, like, I think the way that we would have said this when I was young is, you don't make the sunrise, you don't make the sunset. Like, there's ways of putting it, like, sort of dismissively. But can you talk a little bit about that feeling of surrender? Well, the first piece is recognizing that you're owning a life. You know, it's like, I have a life. I am the doer. You know, it's that, that identity is so deep in us. Like, I am now conducting an interview. You know, it's like seeing it. And <laughs> As Ramdas would say, can I conduct an interview but not get lost in the role of interviewer? Right, exactly, right. Yeah. And what I'm loving, and, and Val, so many things that Pete shared, what was so cool is he was saying how you remind each other, mm. you know, that it's like you're both witnessing in the same way, so you really help each other remember. And I feel like that's the whole deal with what, you know, what we can do with each other is help remember. So it's like one, like with us, one of us will be a little more in that sticky identified place. And we have invited each other to, in some playful or kind or curious way, help us remember. Mm -hmm. And then once, once you see it, I don't know if you even call it surrender. If you really see like if I can really see right now where there's a ego habit of wanting to be understood or loved or whatever, if I can even see it and enough say it, you know, like I want to look good, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not inhabiting that shape anymore in that moment. Mm -hmm. So seeing is freeing if we really see it. 
And sometimes we see it and it's really sticky. And that's where there's more of that, what we call surrender, which I think is really opening to feeling more what really is. It's like putting our head in the demon's mouth, you know, like when the resistance is gone, the demons are gone. It's like that surrender is just actually letting be, (laughs) you know, in the deepest way. Yes. Yes. I, I keep... I, 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 something that I learned from you, which by the way, I don't know if Pete told you that you are one of my dearest teachers and, um, I'm the listeners of this podcast know that I'm actually in the MMTCP program right now. And, um, and so by the way, that delights me. Oh, (laughs) I love it. I think that's very cool. I really, I really, really love it so much. Um, and so you're you're quote you're you're basically the third host of this podcast because you're quoted so frequently, but um, but something that I really learned from you is having just like a very simple phrase to remind myself when I'm getting caught up, um, and that changes. But one that has been really working for me was is I don't have to do anything. <laughs> And I mean that on like the deepest yeah. level, like in a Tao kind of, mm. oh, I don't have to do anything. I, I I can just be. And that is like, that's one of those really loaded phrases that all of a sudden, whatever I'm going through, however caught up I am, it can really just relax my whole body because it's so often feels like, even so, like, okay, oh, I'm caught up. I need to surrender. And like, like that's something else to do. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> or exactly. be present. That, yeah. So I mentioned David Nickturn earlier. I was talking about how exhausting it is to be present. We were having lunch and I was like, I can do it for like maybe 40%. That's generous. Like 40% on a very good day. I'll be like very present. We're in Hawaii or someplace where it's easy. I'm present. I'm present. I'm present. And I'll never forget. He was like, stop trying so hard. Like, like that is just another, is it an ego trip? It might be like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Like holding your breath for a really long time. I went to some, when I was very, when I first got moved into an ashram. So I I had this idea that I'd be enlightened in about eight years if I worked really hard. (laughs) Forgive me because I was like 20, you know, but that was my thing. And I took my type A stuff into a spiritual life. But now and then I'd go to like different spiritual teachers and I'd say, well, I'm doing this, this and this. What else should I do? Mm-hmm. And to a T, I swear, they would, they would look at me and they'd catch on really quickly and say, just relax. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go, okay, just relax. You know, that's going to be my <laughs> – that would yeah. become my next project. So we – it's like our most – one of our most basic strategies to try to – protect and enhance is to think there's a self doing something. Mm. I mean, even our, our worry thoughts are just basically our mind is, try- we're trying to feel like we're taking care of a problem. That's one of my favorites. And the underlying yeah. assumption yeah. is there's a problem. So one yeah. of my things is just to say, does no matter what it is, it's not a problem. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's, it's not, not a, a problem. problem. It's just, it just is what it is. It feels bad. It's, it's hurtful. It, da, 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 da. But just to cut out the um, framing. And I, so that's, I, I love what you said, Val. I mean, that's so 
powerful. I don't have to do anything. Catch the trance. Yeah. That's a, that's a cool one. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to adopt there. It isn't a problem. I mean, that's, well, I, I kind of made a joke because you, you recommend, um, or the questions that I've heard you say and, and that I practice really often when doing like rain or, or dealing with emotions is what's happening inside of me. And can I be with this? And I was telling Pete or somebody, I was like, I'm, I'm almost too good about asking what's happening inside of me. Like I'm doing that almost like every five minutes, <laughs> what's happening inside of me now. <laughs> um, and but then my two questions are what's happening inside of me and how do I fix this? <laughs> oh, you've corrupted it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So then I'm like, Oh wait, yes, no. How, how can I be with this? That's it. Yeah. How can but, I be with this? I like that. I love that. What you said, like, yeah, the, the just kind of the predisposition of the thinking mind is to want to solve a problem. So, well, that's that thing. It, uh, I think it was Muji who said, given the choice between the destination and the journey, the ego will always choose the journey. Like, and somebody also said the first step of waking up is to realize you don't want to wake up. Like you actually would rather grind against a problem. Mm. And we're sort of back to the Chili's commercial playing in your head when you're meditating. We sort of like the, the drama of the struggle, it, it reminds me of, I can also be like, what, what else should I do? What else should I do? You hear about a new teacher. Oh, Tara Brock, maybe, maybe that's the one, you know what I mean? That one's I, right. Th- yeah. Yeah. Trust that voice. But who was it that said enlightenment is, I think it was Trungpa Rinpoche said he, Enlightenment is the ego's final disappointment or whatever, because it's not for the ego. It is this great disappointment mm. that it's like Zen. We open the hand and nothing is in the hand and, and you were there all along. And, and all of the, that Lord of the Rings style journey that we want is it's, it's actually way less. Um, it doesn't have to be that dramatic. It can be like a cup of water pouring into the ocean. It can be that natural and, and, doing less, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the problem with even the word journey is you get the sense like you're going somewhere. You're on your way somewhere else. And it's just, there's, it's nowhere else. And even, so even an idea that we're trying to get somewhere means we're not relaxing back into the beingness that's always and already here. Mm. Yeah. It's tricky though, because that's the absolute. I mean, that's the truth is that really, if there's an essence to meditation, it's a, a relaxing back into the fullness or the awakeness or the openness. Um, and there are these, what the Buddhists call skillful means, there are ways that really um, incline us towards relaxing back. Mm-hmm. And so they have a subtle taste of doing and we have to hold them really, really lightly. And what makes them work is really if our aspiration is really sincere. Like if there's, if it, if the if the skillful means the doing comes from a deep longing for belonging, for realization, mm. then we can get away with the little doings and basically that lead to non-doing. <laughs> That's yeah. what the only good doings are the ones that incline us towards non-doing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That reminds me of Ramana Maharshi. I'm always saying this, but he's like the the stick that you use to stoke the fire 
towards the end, you drop the stick in the fire too. Like mm. any method should self-destruct. Any method worth its salt should self-destruct. Mm. But we get addicted I, to our methods. We like our methods. That's the journey versus the destination. I, I can relate to it though. I mean, for, for, I almost said, for goodness sake, for goodness <laughs> sake, I'm a comedian and it's a really weird, beautiful, I have no judgment, weird. It's a weird thing to spend most of my time doing this, talking about this with Val, thinking about this, studying about this, meditating, whatever it might be, or just delighting in the now, the, the, the thing that I'm really feeling thick like gelatin this morning. It's beautiful. Mm. And then I get in my car and I drive to 200 people and I have them celebrate me and my specialness. <laughs> and I, I, for, a for a living, Tara, for a living, I show off and prove that I am exceptional. Not just once, moment by moment by moment by moment by moment, and then at the end, I save my best one for last. And so I leave on the highest high. It's a really fierce energy. I don't think I need to like renounce it, but like it's a really, I'm basically like a, a fitness person who most nights I go out to Cheesecake Factory and eat everything. Like, it's a, <laughs> what, what, like Wait a minute. let me ask you a question then. Yeah. What, what is your deepest motivation for your comedian work and play? Well, I am not going to say that it's to delight people. That's what I will tell myself on my deathbed is that <laughs> I was in the service of people and, and life is hard and laughter is beautiful. That's in there, but that's some bullshit. <laughs> we were just talking about this, like entrepreneurs and millionaires that say that everything they do is for their children. And you're just like, can you just be a little more honest? Can you like, I, I would love it if you said I'm a money and power addict and I, I get a real <laughs> charge from closing a huge deal. It makes me feel alive. I would have liked that if my father said that instead of, you know, everything I do is for my kids. Cause we're like, so you leave for 12 hours a day for us. I don't understand. <laughs> so in that spirit, I'm trying to say that like, it feels I, this I do mean. It feels divine to get a room full of people agreeing, especially if you can get them agreeing on something beautiful or sort of uh, loving mm -hmm. together. But there's also a feeling of conquest. Like I look at the crowd and I'm like, I don't have anything in common with these people. One of my core negative beliefs is people are unsafe. So of course I would go into a line of work that makes me prove that people are safe. And that's a real rush for me. So I, I'm, I'm just trying to answer, honestly, what so do you think? I, I was also going to add, because we just were talking about this like wounds to wisdom thing where we're both finding that the, the, the defenses that we developed as a child to make ourselves feel safe, we are now finding the benefit of that in our work. Right. So Pete learned uh, as a child that to the only way to feel safe in a room is to kind of take it over and control it and to make people laugh in tense situations to diffuse the tension. Yeah. And he's made a whole career out of that. And there is like this beautiful manifestation of it. But even if the only purpose of it is, is 
to make my child self feel safe. I mean, even there's something lovely. I, that is that. way more honest than I'm doing this for you guys. Like <laughs> that's, that's what you say in the interview or like I said, on your deathbed, what, what are you thinking, Tara? I feel like you, you I'm you loving know. this. I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think uh, you, you just nailed it, Val. It's like mm. we, of course we get wounded and we do stuff all the time to try to make ourselves feel better. And I look at that as part of the awakening. Mm. I, th- I don't think we're doing it. I feel like when I say I'm meditating, reality is meditating. It's like the universe is meditating through this body mind. And when mm. I go out and, and give talks or keynotes or this or that, it's reality doing that, and it has a marbled experience. And part of the marbling is it reinforces my good personhood. You know, if you ask me, why do you do it, it? It kind of undoes some of that basic sense of unworthiness, and it makes me feel valuable and so on. So I've got the same, that's my version of trying to feel safe. Wow. But that has a value. You know, there's something about quieting down that trance of unworthiness actually frees me up to be more of just the universe flowing through. And I would say that it's probably the same for you, Pete, that the more that child gets it, that you really are safe. I mean, that it's not even a you is safe. Reality is safe. Um, The more your spontaneity is not just in the form of a comedian on stage, it's just a spontaneity of a life force that is a blessing to whatever comes into contact with it. Mm. Yes. That's wow. that's Ramdas, you remind me, he said to me, he said, don't do comedy, be comedy. Yeah, <laughs> it's like just yeah, be yeah. comedy. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Like it seems so simple, but I know exactly what he means because I'm sure you can relate, Tara. When you're trying to be a good teacher, like it's not really happening. It gets away, right gets in the way and the best shows that I have are the ones where you get out of your own way Mm. and I couldn't relate to what you just said more because I I'm with you it's it's emotional for me I'm like making my inner child calm down oh is the most opening experience the joke that I have even before I had kids I was like if you ever want to ask dad for a hundred dollars just catch him when he's coming off stage. But it's more than the ego trip. It's like there's a real unification of that group. Mm-hmm. I always say that the comedian merges with the audience and that becomes the show. A lot of comedians don't merge with the audience, uh, not to finger wag, but in the most beautiful ones, the audience is a bunch of individuals that merge into something we call an audience. Then the audience merges with the performer into something we call a show. And you get off stage and you go like, oh, my God, we were all here together. Like we were all and I feel so safe. Mm. And that's when all of my fear is gone. And not just the night I do the show. It bleeds into the next day. Val and I will go out to dinner and I'll go, I'm sorry, I, I can't tune out the people next to us. Because what that what is that? That's my anxiety. Like I don't feel safe. I'm I'm listening to them to make sure that they're not having an argument, all that sort of stuff. And what she'll say is, "You need to do a show." She's like, <laughs> "You need a fix of a show." You need a fix. Yeah. yeah. But what I'm hearing you say, Tara, is like, 
there's no problem. <laughs> there's no problem. Exactly, exactly. Not to make it wrong. And it's isn't, it, isn't it a mitzvah to know what calms you and what merges you into reality? Oh, you are blessed. I mean, it's like when you can do the day-to-day stuff in a way that's healing old wounds and just, I mean, yes, it feels good. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. And it frees us up in a much deeper way. And that wasn't a quick one for me. It's like I felt really ashamed that I felt inflated from being a sought-out teacher for a long time. And then I realized, well, the inflation is because there's some deflation in there. And it's, and and if I can just sense the inflation and then let go of the idea of a self, then it begins to reassure the deepest part of me that it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> just, it's okay. And, and my, I have this new book coming out, Trust the Gold, and that's become another one of my mantras is just trusting the goodness that's underneath it all, including what seems like an egoic, maniacal drive for, you know, impression, impressing people, <laughs> you know, trust the goal. Right, right. Oh, what I, I am all about this because, again, in the Christian tradition, so my friend uh, Rob Bell comes from the Christian tradition and I really enjoyed that he, when people applauded at the end of his talks, that he, he'd either applaud too or he'd just say thank you. Because in the Christian world that I grew up in, you'd point up. You'd be like, not me, not me. And I specifically complimented him on like, it seems like it was you that did all the research to write the talk. And it seems that it was you that got in the car and got there on time for sound check. It was you that that found the confidence to talk in front of a thousand people like why can't we trust am i using this right trust the gold like that was good mm. it's okay we and i also call bullshit when people because i've pointed up <laughs> i've pointed up not me it's god and that was just another way of doubling the win uh, you're giving me all this all these chips at the poker table and then I go I don't want these chips I'm going to give them to the needy and now I'm double king I I'm a winner and I'm mild and meek and humble and that's just another way of uh, not again to go back to what we're saying I guess there's nothing wrong with that but there isn't anything wrong with just owning that you did something that you, that you are a valued teacher like why is why does it have to be so nasty well, and the thing is that by saying something's not wrong doesn't mean we don't be really, really honest to see if it causes pain or separation. Mm. Because I also have noticed in um, teaching that I call it special person, where I'll do a workshop and you know, some and a lot of adulation will come my way, and I'll leave with the inflation, but I won't take that next step of of just sensing the good feeling, but I'll own it more. And what happens if I own it is I actually feel more separate from people. And mm-hmm. and that that separation will cause a suffering that'll then help me to remember not to own it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. a special person, like working with special person or the important person that knows more than other people, really became for a number of years, that was a place not of criticizing myself for it as much as getting really interested and kind towards it, but but not wanting to be identified with it. Yeah. Does that I make sense? That. I love that. That yep. makes so much sense. And we've been talking a lot about like, 
bringing light to your unconscious we or talked your, about that. Yeah, yeah your shadow self so that it doesn't come out sideways that's right. exactly that's so right. it's just bringing awareness to that and Fucking a, you really right. you really just <laughs> when you do bring awareness to it you and you keep going down the the layers you see that there is some sort of wound there that it's compensating that's for right. Then you can have compassion for it. And I mean, really, the greatest thing that I've learned from you is that compassion just kind of like <laughs> dissipates everything in Ooh. there. And it's and yeah, so so that keeps this the specialness from, you know, in, in show business, what we see so many people is is just always chasing the specialness, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But if it, it's almost like if you if you pick it up and just really look at the specialness and what it's wanting, um, you can, you can have compassion for it. And then it doesn't have all that power. It doesn't have you anymore. That's beautifully put because I do feel like compassion is a pivotal moment. Like Mm -hmm. if I even say to myself, just be kind, you know, just just even that word. And I'm just saying it now. It's like the eye is no longer in such a tight, bind of a shape it's like there's a softening around the edges so mm-hmm. any remembrance of of love of kindness of compassion um helps us to open back into a, a larger belonging it's very sweet mm-hmm. mm. yeah it turns out mr rogers was right all along yeah, <laughs> yeah. he knew, he knew. <laughs> i had two two sort of i've been listening to a lot of richard Roy richie this week so he was talking about St. Paul, who can be a complicated figure to some, um, but he had this really, he said, this is the, this is what a converted person sounds like, meaning they've changed their relationship to reality. And it seems like it's what we're talking about. And Paul's line is, I am what I am, meaning mm. it, it's just what I am. He also says, I live no longer, not I, which means I am what I am. And that's not even what I am. So it's sort of a <laughs> paradox. But there is like, there's a real freedom in the compassion to go like, Pete did have like a drive to be special. Mm -hmm. And then it was sort of a beautiful and unlikely vehicle, as you said, to like pick up that specialness and let it drive me home. And I'm listening to Kelly Clarkson and my heart is open and I'm letting (laughs) people cut in front of me and I'm waving a puppy. It's, It's just... I've never, I've always said I've never done cocaine, but it has to be what cocaine is like. It's just like, <laughs> everybody's okay with me. Mm. And that, and we can have that compassion for it. I am what I am. And, but it's also not what I am. It's, it's just what's happening. It's what you said. It's reality is doing this. I am I, sort of. Losing really, it. And reality is doing this is really helps me a lot. When I, mm. when I start, when I first sit down to meditate, I remind myself that reality is meditating. Mm-hmm. You know, just get away from the little inner coach behind the curtain that's saying, now do this, now do that, you know? Yes. But one of the things that I was, as we were talking about you being a comedian, um, there's a documentary that's being made right now on uh, comedians working with anxiety and mm. how they work with their own anxiety and anxiety and, and how comedy helps with anxiety. And there's all this science you probably know about it. I don't. Oh, well, there's just a ton of science about how when you're um, entertained by something, when you when you're laughing, uh, the 
complete wash of, of chemicals that go through that are exact opposite of fear chemicals. So your body goes from fight, flight, freeze into attend and befriend and all, you know, tons of oxytocin, serotonin, you know, it all flows. Mm-hmm. So you're actually in a profession where you're going out and helping people move from feeling separate and scared to feeling a sense of their shared humanity because that's what hum- when a group laughs together they bond mm-hmm. yes. Yes. you know so yeah, yeah. I, can, I can relate to that i i think it's it's hard to say which is better laughing really hard or for me making people laugh really hard because you want to talk about i like to do jokes about things i'm ashamed of you know that's like a really juicy place for me mm-hmm. um I had a, I always use this as an example, but I had a joke about how I hate my girlfriend's friends. And I know that just sounds like something shocking you would say, but like it, it was really trying to exercise the shame that I had that I didn't like my girlfriend's friends. And really what's wrong with that? Like, why would I like, I sort of defend myself. I'm like, what are the chances that I would like? I don't know these people. They're just the friends of this person that I met. And why, why do I have to love her parents? Like her parents are annoying to me. So there was all of this like, exorcism. So you take it and, and people might not believe this, but you really are sort of like, I wonder if they'll go along with this. Mm -hmm. And then when they do, or I had another one where I was like, I don't have sex in my dreams. I can't make it happen in my dreams. I'm always being turned down in my dreams (laughs) or, or it just never works out in my dreams. And that's embarrassing. I suppose like, it's not the Western. I'm a winner. I have sex in my dreams. I I do it on the back of a Pegasus and I'm a king. (laughs) I love getting people, sorry, I'm talking too much, but you're in an alpha position, you're under lights and you're on a stage, which means you're taller than everybody. You have a microphone, which means you're louder than everybody. So in a real primal way, a primate way, you are the alpha. Mm -hmm. And I love being alpha beta. I love using a position of power to be like, I, I pooped my pants last month. That is so much funnier and more interesting and more healing than just doing what a lot of comedy is now I'm preaching. But like a lot of comedy is like, isn't food great? Isn't sex great? Isn't winning great? Those are usually the big three. And and you're basically just selling them back what they came in believing. But if you can get them to admit, like the line that I've been using a lot is actually something Val said. I say, you ever ever have to poop so bad you pee second? (laughs) Thank you for crediting me. That's Val. Well, Val said that to me. Talk about alchemy. That's really that to wonderful. Me. I'm never going to forget that. That's going to be my takeaway from this whole thing. Of course it is. It's good. It's so good. Tara, that's what comedy is. And I do that joke. And I go, this is why live comedy matters. Look around you. Everyone's laughing. You thought it was just you, that you're weird. And I was like, feel the healing. And and people agree. You know well, what I mean? You are like, taking like the the like animal shame of our bodies and we're like, hey, we're all we all do this thing and aren't we're to, in the same. And to have a powerful position person mm-hmm. say, You ever have to poop so bad you pee second, I think is is really, really I think what I really like about it. <laughs> And I think you're serving the world with it as well as, you know, doing your own healing. And I know for myself that it's the talks I give that are incredibly disclosing and show me with all my foibles and stumbling around and self-doubt. And 
those are the ones I get all the emails about. That was a great, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's like it gives people hope that they're okay, that they can trust the goal because all of these normal human conditionings aren't who we are. You know, they don't define yeah. us. Yeah. Well, and and I mean, it kind of goes. I mean, isn't it such a beautiful thing about the human experience that you are doing this thing that heals you? And that you are doing this thing that heals you and that it heals others as well. Like you can almost trust that because it's healing for you, that's going to be transmuted um, and and spread to to others because we're essentially all the same or we're mostly the same. That's, yeah. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So and well. we're completely in relationship. It's like, yeah. it's like what each of us is experiencing is only in relationship to how the energy is between the three of us right now. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's like we can only describe things in terms of relational fields. So. That's so funny. I, I'm trying to do a joke right now about the Big Bang. And I'm like, big? Big <laughs> only exists in relation to small. And there was nothing there to witness it. <laughs> so it, it could have been a very small bang. I mean. Compared to past bangs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Really, it only became big after apes evolved into humans and started to go like that. That was bigger than me. Like it's it's very. I definitely got those types of thoughts from Alan Watts. Mm. He's like everything only exists in relationship, and that and that. I was just talking to somebody about all of the suffering in the world, and I know this kind of sounds crazy, but I was like, it's always been this way. Like, I know it seems like in a lot of ways worse than ever, but I was like, we could have been born in Mongolia and Genghis Khan could have been swarming through the countryside. Mm -hmm. And there was a time that if you lived in a village, it could have been a utopia, but there were marauders. There were like people on horseback that just came and took over village. So again, like uh, talking about death can actually bring out the life, can make you feel good. Talking about how, Jesus says the poor will always be among you. I think he's sort of saying like suffering is always, is always going to be part of it. Mm. As Alan Watts says, as soon as you move forward behind you exists, as soon as there's big, there's little, as soon as there's Tara only knows Tara by reflecting it off of Pete. Isn't that, Mm. I mean, aren't we talking about a world of relationship? So when the three of us can get together and create a different, a loving, gentle frequency, a soft frequency, that that's that's beautiful that's a good use of the options <laughs> <laughs> compared to us you know basically putting each other down yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. this yeah. is really lovely and it, it's specifically it's helping me also look at my own wounding and and be like there's no problem here of course that's like the nature of humanity because i think my core negative belief or one of them is, oh no, I'm all alone. Um, and I'm like too small to be alone. So it's definitely child, uh, child self stuff. And, and the way that just like Pete's comedy has helped his child self feel safe. Uh, I will mirror and attune and lock on to someone else because there's a belief that like I only exist in relationship with them. So, um, so that's obviously there, there, there's healing that can come around that, but I'm finding as I'm, 
going back to what we were saying, wounds to wisdom, like as I am uh, guiding meditations for people that that's actually a, a superpower in that situation, because you can really attune to what that specific person is needing and, and be that for them in the moment. Um, but yeah, but, but just to hear like, oh yeah, pe- we all exist in relationship to each other. That's not like my own pathology or my own specific problem. Not to say that there isn't some healing that can be done with feeling safe alone and, and nurturing my, myself and trusting that I have that. But, um, so much of what I think we take ownership of is, is just wired in us. It's part of the deal. And we think that that is our own personal problem that no one else has just us you know it's so true i feel like any notion of a self comes with aversion to self Mm. because the self is experienced as separate and that means the self is experienced as needing to protect and needing to further itself and we don't like those things we don't like that we get aggressive we don't like that we're needy we don't like that we're greedy we don't like selfing so and that comes out of identification any identification with the self it's like the like i think i can't remember who said it but the primal mood of the separate self is fear and and with that comes shame for not being good because we don't like the primal activities of grasping and aversion so and i love what you said val because our way of healing those wounds becomes our strengths. Like you just described how your way of healing that sense of separateness was to deepen your attunement to others. And then that becomes, like you said, it's a superpower. Mm. And, you know, Pete, for you to be able to take that, that feeling that it's not safe and for you to be able to come forward and be engaged in a way that creates, um, connection and helps people feel a a shared sense of safety and belonging. I mean, that's a superpower that you can do that. You know, so it, I I do think that they can become superpowers as long as we don't get identified and own them. (laughs) Because then they, then then we'll feel the suffering and then reality will wake us up to that suffering and we'll be okay. We'll be compassionate. (laughs) I mean, Oh, own the gold, girl. That was just oh. own the gold. Own the gold. <laughs> that was so You're not going to leave me with that mantra. Own the gold. What is, what is Trust the gold. Trust the gold. But I mean, like, <laughs> own the gold, girl. <laughs> I just, title for your book. Call the publisher. It's own right. the gold. Right. That's, just, that's book two. Yeah. Well, well, trust the gold. That was just so gold because. Mm. The, the 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 cycle of like, okay, I'm separate, so I'm going to serve myself, and then you feel dirty for and bad for being greedy or wanting to be special or wanting to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. We're back to everything I do, I do for my kids. This is an enabling lie to help us cover the shame, or exactly. you know, we could say it's just a story to cover the shame because we're all telling ourselves all sorts of things that aren't true to help us do the things that we feel that we have to do Mm. all because we saw ourselves as separate. And because we saw ourselves as separate, we thought there were all these things to do Mm -hmm. and some of them are yucky. So then we have to 
cognitive dissonance. We have to lie, like we have to build a new story that's right. to cover up the shame. I mean, that's a game changer. What you just said, it's a game changer. Yeah, and in radical acceptance, you talk about this a lot about the like eyeing and myeing, and so and boy, that really just changed. That was such a paradigm shift of like you have a an energy of of maybe anxiety that would just come up and out, but then it's like we kidnap it and we go, this is my anxiety. And I can think of all the past times that I was anxious. Oh my God, am I an anxious person? <laughs> you know, and then it's become the whole identity and 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 it lives. And I knowing that is so helpful. And I I still am in a constant practice of forgetting that, having the suffering remind me that I've forgotten having brief moments of, of remembering and trying to let it go and then starting the whole cycle over again. I, uh, Byron Katie talks about suffering being like the alarm clock that's going off that you forgot. Yeah. And I, I want to put this to you, Tara. I don't want to, if I'm being honest, of course I want to blab and be impressive. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> but we're but, already impressed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm done then. You are. Um, I had this great visit with my mom and my mom can be very challenging to me. And I noticed what a fierce teaching she was because she kept showing me where I kept insisting that this straw man was real when she could tear it down in a sentence. Mm. And I was like, the Val has heard this a million. So as the, have the listeners, but it's like the mantra became, burn it down in the good way. I, I, it was almost like a, a good hell where I was like, everything that isn't real can go. And this sense of self that I have that can be slashed to death in one word from my mother must not be real if it's so fragile. So let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. Mm. And the suffering was the reminder. And I love that you lean in like that. I mean, because that really is the deal. It's like usually we, you know, tense against the situations that expose what we don't like. Mm. And by leaning in makes it possible to let go. And mm. so that's the whole thing. It's like if a dog runs at you, whistle for it, you know, like a, a violent dog. Or, you know, it's like on some level. You <laughs> oh, that one's getting used. We're saying that in our, we're adopting that in our household. <laughs> But yeah, it's turning towards, it's like, um, there's this classic story of people bringing their deepest troubles to the sage and having to go through all sorts of wilderness to get to him. And he swears them to secrecy before he'll say anything. And then he says, I have one question. And that is, what are you unwilling to feel? Mm-hmm. What are you unwilling to feel? And I'll ask myself that a lot. I'll just say, okay, you know, like this moment, what am I unwilling to sit down into in my body? Mm-hmm. And like if I ask at this moment, I'm, I have a little bit of, um, you know, kind of excitement and eagerness and still a little, you know, kind of with the excitement, a little tension. And it's like I don't quite want to feel the tension. So, ah, you know, mm-hmm. can I can I just sit in my body, which, of course, then there's not identification with with it so much. Mm. So it's a really powerful question if you if you really come into your body with it. Yeah. The question is what what am I resisting? What am I unwilling to feel? What am I unwilling to feel right now? Yeah. That dog thing. I, I used to have a joke I where I say you're on the dog. 
I love the dog. I'm still on the dog. I I had a joke in my act a long, long time ago where I said, you ever hail a cab just to stop it from hitting you? And it reminds me of (laughs) that. That was was my opener in New York for a really long time. Mm. But there is sort of like a similar vibe there, which is the ownership of like a a taxi is careening at me or I'm calling a taxi. (laughs) I want a taxi. Yeah. It's also Aikido, basically. If some force is coming at you, do you push against it or do you like move with it? You know, and it's kind of like that, too. Yeah. Well, that's your thing. We've been talking a lot. Again, it's an existential kink, but fear is excitement without breath. Mm -hmm. And Val, you don't have to, but you've been really getting a lot of mileage out of just going like, wait, this feeling that I think is unpleasant is actually just another kind of exhilaration. Mm. I, I've been doing it with hunger. I've been doing a, a weird thing where I'm not eating in between meals. So there'll be like eight hours between meals. And this seems up your alley. Tara, I heard you on Tim Ferriss talking about when you were younger, you you would overeat. Or I don't know if you labeled it overeating, but we certainly both have that. Mm-hmm. And one of the weird practices with that is to go, can I just look at what it feels like to want to eat a spoonful of that Szechuan sauce that I bought online. Like I just, (laughs) I just want to eat a spoonful of it and feel it in my mouth. And I go, what is so bad about wanting, like you don't have to do it and you, and you don't even have to say no to it. You can just look at it and say nothing. We're back to the Tao. It's the art of doing nothing. You're just going like, there it is. Would, Would you speak to that? Well, what you're, what you're bringing up really is the nature of addiction, you know, that the way out of addiction, and, and it's hard, like, I don't want to make it sound light, especially around eating, because I'm aware of how pervasive the suffering is around eating and how how many, especially women, but men too, uh, struggle every day with feeling like I hate my body and I'm out of control with eating. So yeah. it's a it's really, and the reason it's so hard is that, if there's, you know, very, very early pre-verbal suffering, it's the first way that a human being can begin to get control over their own body, you know, is, is mm. by self-soothing with food. Mm. So it's really early, you know, that we, that we take it on. Oh, I'm sorry. You saw me growing up. I mean, that <laughs> <Yeah>. was, the <laughs> first thing I learned was the feeling of being at my family dinner table was if you were there, you'd have been, become a comedian. Like it's the only choice. Uh, and then the only way to not feel the intense feeling of mom does not speak dad. If their language is dad does not speak mom. Nobody speaks my brother. And I'm just watching everybody miss each other. Mm-hmm. And the only solution that was available to me was to eat so much that the blood would go to my stomach and focus on digesting instead of tormenting me with playing out every potential reality. I mean, so I'm just agreeing. That's a long way of saying right on. I remember when I was maybe 10, my parents let, I went with some family friends on a trip and I took my diary. And when I came back, my parents, I, I shared it with my parents everything in the diary had to do with what restaurant we went to and what food I ate. And that was it. It was all food. You know, it wasn't like I was an editor for the New York times food magazine. You know, it was like, that was my, so, wow. so yeah, I, I used 
food for self-soothing and, and ended up as a teen overweight and late teen and with, you know, a lot of binging and a lot of dieting and so on. So I know the struggle really well. And I also know some of what releases and lessens addiction and has a lot to do with what, well, both what you're saying, which is you just start, you start even one out of 10 times not doing, but just being with the feelings and, and finding out that they come and go. Mm. And even though they're really intense, you know, you just start learning that you can let them come and go. And the other piece is, and this is more important, is that there is such shame around it that until you heal the shame, it's very hard to, because the shame keeps triggering the behavior, it's very hard to get out of the behavior. And so it's being deeply loving and forgiving towards the part of you that's driving the eating so that you binge and, and you, right after that, you, you can't even do anything. You can't be compassionate. You're just in a stupor usually, but when you can <laughs> to yeah. bring a, tr to really, even if you can't feel compassionate, have the intention to feel compassionate towards yourself begins mm. to soften the constellation that keeps up the addiction. Oh, mm. I love that so much. And that's reminding me that in radical acceptance, you advised someone who I think was um, dealing with her overeating at a retreat to say, I forgive myself. Like it's, it's not my fault. And God, I forgive myself is another one. I of am, those. I am what I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Like there's still some, I don't want to call it gunk, but there's still some gunk in the oven that hasn't been cooked up, you know. Of course, yeah, there's unprocessed okay. stuff. And I don't think we can do it alone. That's the other piece. And this is back to the relational. It's like by the three of us all naming that in some way we've had struggles with, you know, being addictive around food. It's going to mean a lot of other people listening will be a little kinder towards themselves because of it. Mm -hmm. We need to, the the biggest way to not take it personally is to really get that so many are, we're just it's a society that we're in and it's the way our nervous system works it just has to grasp onto something to soothe itself yeah. these bodies that's why it was so helpful to realize that food is made by corporations that don't care about you that that sounds kind of mean but they're putting things in food to make you uh, addicted to them on purpose. That's right. On on purpose. And, and I, I know it's like very vogue to not be a victim, but I took a lot of comfort in going, I am a victim. I had the same thing with alcohol. I stopped drinking about three years ago, a little over three years ago. And what helped me was actually a little bit of owning, having been duped, meaning alcohol is very, very addictive. For some reason, I think it just lights me up more than others. I, I can't, I don't, I've only ever been me. But going like, you don't know about like, that one, Pete. <laughs> what do yeah, you mean? That you've only ever been you. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> you mean in a Buddhist way? <laughs> well, yeah. You know, in some way, I think we know others too. But oh. that's okay. And I, I think we know trees. I think we know all of all of existence. I think we know the experience deep down. It's all the same. All of our same ancestors, you know. But anyway, that does, I interrupted you. And no, I for a very beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. um, I was just saying, it's hard to talk about, again, like food, alcohol addiction is a thing. But when I, when I went, something that's very addictive was marketed to you as freedom. Mm. And the people who made those ads don't give a shit about you. 
They just want your money. And the same with why are we putting sugar in tomato sauce? Like mm. I, I found it empowering to go, I've been a victim here. You put, I remember when I heard that sugar is nine times more addictive than cocaine, the joke would be, Oh God, I got to try cocaine. <laughs> like, it's, it, it, <laughs> like cocaine is nine times less addictive than sugar. I'm having sugar every day. Like I guess I can handle cocaine. That's oh, a joke. I'm breaking that habit first and build my willpower. And then <laughs> <laughs> it's the methadone for sugar. Right. So funny. I don't even like cocaine. I'm just using it to get off sugar. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but like, just go like there's there's a good time for me. There was a good time to go like I've been had, and I liked that. I liked going. That was a, a way that was easier to forgive myself and go like, it is the culture. It is the, even the story of food. Like, don't you want to be? Val is so loving. She's like, I'm an abundant person, and that's why I like lean towards addiction mm. is because I'm so abundant. I'm like, if ice cream is good, eat it all day. And like <laughs> that, that, that was another that's loving. Beautiful. That's a That's, and that's not truth too. It, it, that doesn't it feel like the loving way of saying like, let's keep an eye on that. Well, where because does desire I'm, come from? I mean, think yeah. about it in the deepest way we want to live and love fully. Mm. And it gets focused on some substitutes that might not, serve us as well. But deep down, if you trace back the desire, it's to experience our full belonging. You know, it really is. If you, why do you want to eat? Well, you want to soothe, so you can calm down, so you can feel more connected to the world, so that, so that, so that, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And experience that. I had somebody say, as comedians, it's our job to eat, taste, lick, touch everything like we're supposed to report on it and i was like that sounds really right to me <laughs> it's like oh, I i'm it. supposed to have a weird adventure so i can write a book about it like that's, that's, the shadow so you can report out to the public yeah I love yeah that. that's right yeah. it's a wonderful thing to have a job that's like i'm supposed to dive into the into the but, abyss and i i love what you're psyche. saying though i mean you you know that it's not your fault because you got programmed you know you got conditioned by society and I would say that it's not our fault, like collectively. I mean, it's not like you're not a victim. It's like, it's not like you're a victim. It's like we are all a victim of a society that sends out advertising and messages and so on that keeps us hooked. And the society is, and the, it's the big corporations are absolutely dedicated to hooking us on buying more, eating more, you know, it's, it's a consumer economy. And so, and I think of that in terms of racism, that unless we get how the society is programming us, then either white people feel white guilt because it's my fault that I'm so caught up in bias, mm-hmm. or those of color can get caught in feeling, well, how come I'm letting myself get so feeling put down? And how come I'm so angry? Or how come I'm so wounded? You know, mm-hmm. it's like, of course we're all wounded by living in a, you know, racial caste system. We're all wounded. Mm -hmm. And you could say that means we're all victims of a racial caste system, but it, it, it helps for getting at the truth that the society and the way it's designed 
does program us to be more violent, more addictive, and so on. I was absolutely sorry, Boba. No, go ahead. I was just talking to my friend Mike Birbiglia last night about this that we have football teams named the Vikings, the Pirates is a baseball team. Um, there was another one, uh, it doesn't matter. Vikings and Pirates raped and pillaged, that's what they did. And then, Tara, this is hard to admit. There's a part of me that thinks that's cool. That that the, the the energy of a group of swashbuckling pioneers that killed and took whatever they wanted is baked into the cultural mythology of the West. Mm. It, it's not only our history, and it doesn't. It speaks to racism. It speaks to misogyny. But what I'm the reason I'm offering this is if people don't think they're being indoctrinated into a system that secretly in our shadow. And not not so secretly values in our open consciousness, Vikings and pirates, Vikings and pirates. It's a children's movie about pirates. Again, I know I went to a very liberal school where we would have conversations like this and my father would be in the corner rolling his eyes. So I understand. But like, that is it. Like we are quietly and unknowingly glorifying rapists and murderers because that's capitalism. Mm. Go get it. Go get it. Don't you kind of think it's cool that they went into an unsuspecting village and took all of their stuff because they thought of it first? Isn't that what capitalism is? I invented something that first, and now I'm going to sell it to you. We joke on Shark Tank all the time. They say on Shark Tank, it costs 15 cents. And they go, what do you charge? And they go, $49.95. <laughs> and they tell us this. <laughs> Because it's our value. Vikings and pirates are our value. It's our value. We, we think it's cool. <laughs> it's deep. And I'm also like, I'm just thinking of the timeliness right now. We're recording this on the centennial of the Tulsa massacre. Like that's the day we're recording this. Mm. And it was that same psyche that actually thought that there was something powerful and good about going and wiping out a whole community of people that, that actually uh, celebrated, that they actually brought their children to watch just the way white people would bring their children to watch lynchings. That, that it's just, it's deep in this white European male colonizing psyche, just as you said, I mean, you said it perfectly, it captures it all, the Vikings, and the pirates. And if we can recognize that, there's not as much personal blame to those that are the violators. Mm. There's an understanding that hopefully would have us dedicate our lives to changing the systems that keep, you know, enculturating that in our brains. Mm. But it's powerful stuff in it. And it doesn't just go away. It's not just 100 years ago, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I love that this came up because we so often, we, we take questions for uh, our episodes of the podcast. And the, one of the most common questions is, like, where does social justice and how does it fit into a spiritual practice? And and we talk so much about allowing and and you don't have to do anything and you know and of course we know that that's like there's absolute truth and there's relative truth and but 
I think that language sometimes, especially to someone who's newly practicing or has like an idea of a Buddhist being neutral, you know, which is just kind of a, a misunderstanding. Um, yeah, I, people have really struggle with how do I accept and allow like these atrocities? And if I do that, will will I never, you know, fight for change again? So I wonder if you could speak to that because I've heard you have such great wisdom on this topic. I don't know about that. I know that it's a constant tangle that I am working with in the sense that I'll take today as an example to keep it fresh. So I was listening to the daily podcast, the podcast called the daily on, on the Tulsa massacre. Mm -hmm. And I found coming up in me, this um, real hatred towards certain political figures right now who are, you know, at the at the forefront of trying to suppress voter rights because it's just another version of you know it's just Jim Crow playing out over and over and over again. Yeah. So okay, so that came up. So what does it mean to be accepting? Well, for me, it meant accept the hatred that came up in me, you know, and the anger because you know it's a it's devastating to hear the story, and I recommend everybody hear the story of the Tulsa massacre. But, you know, so I opened to the anger and I opened to the um, hatreds and I just said, okay, let it be here. Like I use the, the mantra, this belongs. You probably know that about it. It's, it's like, like a wave in the ocean, this belongs. And when I opened to it, I could feel under it this enormous fear that the power of the, of the fearful mind in those who are so, um, you know, caught in 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 this racism this expression of racism that that fear that's just going to carry on and on generations it's just we're not going to heal it and then underneath the fear was this huge grief now i just started weeping you know just like it is just um so sad to me mm-hmm. that that we humans can't see the sacred the beauty the goodness in each other and can't you know talk and collaborate and support each other and so on that we're caught in trying to put each other down in such Mm -hmm. a violent way. And, you know, when I could get to that grieving, I could just feel care and it didn't make me less inclined to do anything. That was a process of acceptance. It out of that care, I'm actually talking about it right now. You know, it's out of that care. I, I, I speak, I act, I try to support causes in my own ways but it's not coming from hatred. And so what I like to say is that we have to be able to honestly accept the experience of the moment. We're not accepting that people out there are lynching others. That's not what we're accepting. We're accepting our own feelings of maybe first anger or hatred, and then underneath that fear and underneath that grief and underneath that caring. And so acceptance brings us home to our most awake heart. And then we act because the very nature of caring, of compassion, is to want to act in some way to relieve suffering. Mm. So I don't feel like acceptance stops us from acting. It allows us to act from a much more intelligent, you know, caring's place. Yes, absolutely. I love that. And Eckhart Tolle says something similar about like, 
if you, if you don't get curious and allow and accept, and you're just acting from that hatred, it's actually going to perpetuate more hatred. I mean, That's this is what Martin Luther King said as well. Yeah. So instead to, to allow and do that beautiful process that you just described, um, the action is happening from caring. And then that's going to be, that action is going to be loaded with the energy of compassion and caring and perpetuate more of that. And what you're saying is the whole point. You you just said the real point of it, which is Mm -hmm. hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. It just, hatred does not work. Yeah. Thank you. We we say sometimes we don't want the, we want, something removed from our body, but we don't want the surgeon doing it to be shaking with rage. Like (laughs) rage might lead to the look at the grief, as you just said, into the compassion. I I think it can change the quality of how you act. And and I would like my surgeon to be um, having processed and incorporated and transcended and included his rage and his grief and his hatred and his, vitriol or whatever it might be especially um, if his rage was, especially if his rage was directed at you yeah yeah that's right <laughs> i mean i bet surgeons have to do that all the time there there have to be funny interesting i don't mean sexual but sexy like <laughs> spicy stories of someone having to operate on their own father or something like that. I'm pretty sure that's, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that's the whole thing about the show Grey's Anatomy. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's oh, the drama. Right, right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're all operating on our own fathers <laughs> in a way. Um, let's ask some weird questions, Tara. Uh, these are just for fun. Um, there's part of me that wants to give a disclaimer, like this is ego stuff, but who cares? Have you ever seen a ghost, a UFO, or have you ever almost died? <laughs> I know you yeah. talked about being sick. Yeah, I have almost died. I haven't seen a ghost or a UFO, but um, I have had times that, because um, I, I had um, bradycardia and my blood and everything would go down a lot. And I've had times that I felt like I was very close to the edge of being blinked out. Wow. And, it, and, and you, this is, oh, go ahead, please. Um, I've had it a few times. I had that experience, um, you know, when I was really sick one time and I wasn't sure whether or not to go to the emergency room when I was in a downward spiral after having a concussion. Um, and I've had it um, with a mix of medications that didn't seem right and that lowered it. So, yeah. So I, I and when it's happened, I had the idea that I was supposed to open to the fear of dying. So I tried to open to the fear of dying and my organism was battling it. So then I had to open to battling it. And and it was just a constant, it was just a play of fear and trying to open to fear and then opening to not being able to open and, you know, and then it passed, but it was very, um, it, it really is a full circle back to where we started, Pete, because yeah. Because there was nobody home to control how I was responding. It was just my, this nervous system doing its thing. Yeah. It's all that was going on. And gradually I could, there could be a little more witnessing and kindness towards that. But it was its own reality was just doing itself. (laughs) Yeah. I find such, that's just been our latest trip. That's what we were talking about before you joined us, Val, was like, 
it, again, it, it's what we've been talking about this whole time. It's not a failure that your body has certain systems in play, but I know we're both in this community and boy do as a spiritual tourist, I'll admit that I, I don't mean I'm a tourist overall, but I have this gear that I'm like, when Ramdas passed, was it peaceful? Like we want to know that they went like a candle being gently blown out. Um, Maharaji is guru. That is a, a death story. Ramana Maharshi. These are all stories of people just sort of like electing to leave their body at the precise moment that the universe was in balance to have them leave. And, and, and it's really fun stuff, but like, as we say, every day is a new day to remember. Mm. Every moment is a new moment to remember. And I'm getting a lot out of this being like, what part of it? I, my joke is I'm like, I want to have a, a good death. And, I'll, and I always say, I'll let you know how I do. Because that's how absurd that is. It's like, isn't it possible that a good death is to say, boy, I'm really convulsing right now. <laughs> or I'm really... I really just want one more cheeseburger or whatever it is, because that's what the, the chemicals firing are doing. Right. Yeah. I think it's a, um, and not a useful wish. Right. Mm. Just the word good is not a useful wish. And also I don't think it's so helpful to hear those bliss stories of different people's exits. I think Ram Dass's story about his own hitting a wall when he got, when he first got hit by a stroke and trying every possible trick in the bag, you know, this story and nothing worked after all yeah. those years, nothing worked. And he said, he felt like he'd failed the test. Mm -hmm. And then, and then what gradually did end up serving him was remembering love, remembering his loving relatedness with Maharaji. So where I come back for myself is knowing that if I could, if it, if I was at the end of my life and I just had like a few moments and I say, well, what do I really, what would I long for? It would just be to know belonging to loving awareness. I mean, that would be the longing. It may, I may not know. I mean, it may be that it gets clouded over by the struggle of my nervous system, but I think our deepest longing is to know that we belong to love, that we belong to that awareness. That's what Richie Rohr said. He said the the hardest thing for humans to do is accept that they are accepted. And he's like, and that's what makes the gospel hard to accept is like, we want to earn it. We want to, he calls it um, spiritual capitalism. We want to like win in, we want to win God over, and we want to win ourselves over like, and believe that we're good and all this stuff. And he's like, it's very unsatisfying to the ego to be like, you're already good. And you can't make God love you any more or less at any moment. There's nothing you could do that would make him love you less. And that's like the opposite. Of yeah. We, it's disempowering to the ego. And I, there's, yeah. that, there's a beautiful teaching. Um, Punjaji, he says, love is always loving you. Mm. love is always loving you and what happens is for me is when and, and i have an ongoing practice a kind of devotional practice where i'll just sense the you know field of light and loving presence just kind of pouring in and then i realize it's also pouring out of the empty spaces inside me and then it's everywhere and then that's what i am so i realize love is always loving you and you are that love but you've temporarily forgotten yeah <laughs> But it's really useful to sense that 
it's always loving you because it helps you relax and discover that you are the love that's loving. Mm. Mm. Boy, this is what Val and I talk about constantly. It's like, how many times do I have to remember? But the answer is exactly how many times I'm going to remember. And it's like, (laughs) stop, stop wanting to like hit save on the enlightenment. Well, and we were at the, the beach the other day, which is just, I mean, I can't, I feel like the ocean is a perfect metaphor for everything in life. So it's just impossible to not have some contemplation there. And I really, you know, I was kind of in a fearful place. There was a lot of fear in my body. And it feels like changing my relationship to fear is my full-time job lately. So so I was really in that state and, and looking at the ocean and being so, even when I was uh, in, in the church growing up, I felt like God was in the sunset. God was in the tree, like my, you know, uh, seeing the beauty in nature was one of my relationships my ways of getting to God and accessing that love. And I felt very much like the God from my childhood. So not even this, like Mm. my understanding of Mm. of the universe now, or, you know, or awareness or whatever. It was like the God of my childhood was saying to me, I will remind you as many times as you, you need to be reminded. Mm. And, and like, not put out by showing up over and over, allowing me to forget, allowing me to remember um, that just sort of unconditional love, like that you're mm-hmm. not broken because you're forgetting. This is the the yeah. dance and all. It, it's it's like if our daughter Leela, you know, it's how I would feel about her. Like I will remind you that you are safe and loved mm. as many times as it takes. No problem. I love reminding you, you know, mm. so that was the feeling. Mm. And that's what I came that. from you when you shared that devotional practice, which I, I may adopt as well. <laughs> that's well, and the fact you call it your, the God of your childhood, there's something so innocent and true about it mm. that, that love is living through everything. And, we have to find the the ways of what we turn towards that most gives us access. Mm. Like for me, I have a tree, a false Aurelia in here, and I've been cultivating this love relationship that was already there with the tree, but I'm just waking up to it more that we're very in relationship. You know, it depends on me to live. I breathe in the oxygen from it. But more than that, I just, in some way, I actually say, I love you. May you do well. And and in saying that and feeling it loving me, like just supposing that it loves me, and I know how this can sound to some people, but just assuming it loves me actually wakes up the realness of relatedness. And I had an interesting experience. Um, I was listening to a podcast about a physicist. Um, his name is, and I'm looking at the book right now because I just got his book, Carlo Rovelli. Rovelli. He wrote Helgoland. So here he is, this one of the most brilliant uh, physicists in terms of understanding, you know, contemporary physics in the world, and he's, you know, making all these breakthroughs about quantum theory. And his deepest breakthrough that is circulating now has to do with everything in the universe being in relationship with everything else. 
that it doesn't matter what location and two separate disparate objects are in. They're not objects. They're not separate. And they only exist in relatedness to each other, you know, Mm. and, and one little very brief anecdote that he tells is he writes beautifully. He says he cannot go speak to people online or in person until he's first gone outside wherever he is, found a tree, touched it, felt the inspiration of that tree. And that gives him a feeling of belonging and empowerment and happiness. He says he walks away smiling and then he can go speak. So we need to find the pathway of connection that, that soothes us, that wakes us up, whether it's, you know, in a comedy club or, you know, wherever it is. Yeah. 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 With the ocean, with the trees, and then we well, can advance to people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah start with the ocean. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons we like the ocean is because it's so clear that you're in relationship to the whole ocean, you know, like that's right. one of the practices that I sometimes do is you think of the air as gelatinous, you know, if you, if you could just, I'm always trying to point out to myself and others that the air is made of the same atoms that you're made of. Yeah. So it's not like there's real and then there's, like nothing doesn't exist. Like we don't have a scientific basis for nothing. I, I I don't know if that's entirely true, but like everything is something. Even what we perceive as nothing is is something. Because even if it is just a relationship of this is a zero and this is a one, I'm out of my depth. But we're <laughs> we're in an ocean right now. It's that what the hell is water thing. Yeah, no, it's beautiful because it it's just saying that there's no discrete discrete separate object unto itself nothing exists unto itself the waves are all belong are made of ocean and belonging to ocean Mm. yeah Mm. i val i want to give you because we're almost out of time but i want to give you time to ask questions i did want to ask one last well i really have two things yeah I, you ask your questions. Okay, then I'm going to put it, uh, if you if you have one or two, obviously, as many as you like. One I wanted to say, Tara, just because you're a teacher and you might enjoy this, um, you were talking about, like, we know deep down that, we, that there's something bigger going on. Uh, this was a long time ago you said this. And, again, it's Richard Rory. He's like, every fairy tale, it's, a, it's someone realizing that they're born from divine, uh, from royal blood. Mm-hmm. Even Harry Potter... Yeah. is a young boy who realizes his father was the great wizard. And it's like, why do we keep telling this story? It's because it's your story. You realize that your blood is divine, that your parents are the universe itself. And like, you need to wake up to your own son or daughter of Godness. Isn't, isn't that just fun? I love it. And it totally resonates. It's true. It's one of the great, you know, you see it through history of people thinking that. That either, and sometimes it's the parent thinking this isn't my kid because the child does not represent the beauty and the sacredness that they think that they should give birth to. I've seen it mm. both ways, mm. but it's really true. We have it's both truth and distortion because you know we also have a um, an inflation that feels special because we own that nobility and we own that. It's like the consciousness of the universe moves through us and then we own it and it becomes inflation. But if we just get that that's our that's our birthright and it, it it's our essence, then it's actually empowering. Right. right. The, well, that's in Be Here Now. It's one of my favorite. Again, I think it's a very funny stand up bit. It's like 
Tara Brock can't sit at the right hand of God because that's what psychosis is. Like you don't make the journey. Like right. if you realize yeah. you're divine blood and you try and bring, if I try and bring Pete Holmes, uh, it's Christian imagery, but to the right hand of God, that's literally a cliche of an insane person. Mm-hmm. But if you realize I am divine and I'm also not divine, it's, it's a, it's a paradox. It's like I am. And I'm, I, I like to say I'm not in enla- um, Pete isn't enlightened, but I am. It's sort of like both both things are true. <laughs> like Pete yeah. certainly is not, but but the big eye is made of enlightenment. Beautiful, love it. Yeah, this yeah. actually does lead to to something that I wanted to bring up, um, which is, you know, Ken Wilbur has the idea of like cleaning up before you wake up, mm. and I think that there's we we love like cult documentaries. <laughs> and so often the cult leader is touching on some profound truth. Yeah. But what's helped me kind of, and, and for a long time, I couldn't reconcile that, that like that was breaking my brain. Um, and, and now I'm starting to understand that there's like, if you jump straight to like crown chakra, absolute truth stuff, without doing the necessary cleaning up and the necessary uh, witnessing the ego and its patterns, then it can almost like give the ego some of these delusions of grandeur, basically. Yeah. Um, And that, or it can, and I've experienced this with trying to first jump to crown chakra stuff. uh, It can be way too scary just like there's no grounding mm-hmm. and I'm seeing too much too fast. And so maybe that, you know, what I'm experiencing or what I experienced on psychedelics or something is true, but I was already living from the neck up and, and was ignoring my body. And so it was, it was not integrating in a healthy way. And that's what I love. This is, this is where, your work and and Jack's work kind of entered where at first, even with Buddhism, I was like, I don't know. It's so, it's so earthy (laughs) because we were doing like, you know, Kundalini and primordial sound and, you know, TM and all these things that are like, you're, you know, and this could be a misunderstanding of those things, but it was like trying to leave this, this reality. And I was like, Buddhism is just kind of very, very earthy. And I don't know if I need that. But then once I've got so, had such a um, crown chakra, scary experience, I wanted to cling to the earth, like in that movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock, where she like kisses the earth. (laughs) Um, So I really, and I really appreciate specifically the incorporation of the role of the body that has to be through the body and you have to love and nurture and listen to this body. It's not about leaving it or devaluing it. Um, and, and then I've also heard Jack mention that he kind of had the same thing where he, ha- he started more like crown chakra stuff um, and, and realized that he had a lot of cleaning up to do in his body. Um, so so I'm really starting to, this is a new idea, but just starting to understand the kind of natural s- scaffolding of the experience and the foundations of mindfulness. And so anyway, I just threw a lot at you, but I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to that, e- either embodiment or um, or like kind of grounding down before you 
you know, take off. <laughs> take off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually feel like you just offered a beautiful teaching on it. Like that was a little darmet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was it was really perfect because you know the the spiritual teachers that cause trouble they it, it is always a marbled thing. There is some real insight and wisdom, but mm-hmm. they've got unprocessed stuff mm-hmm. and it's not integrated. And so the idea is how can we wake up in a way that's integrated so that we don't have a lot below the line. There's not a lot that's running our behavior that we will claim as part of our spirituality, but it's really just our ego that might want to act in a way to basically, uh, you know, rape a student or mm-hmm. <laughs> act in a way to take money that's not meant for us. So, mm-hmm. and, I've, and I've seen the downfall of so many teachers, and it's not just teachers, of course, it's anybody in power, mm-hmm. because they weren't integrated. They had not done that processing. So it can have a really ugly shadow side. But even when it's not ugly, if we just emphasize emptiness, that uh, nobody's home, this is just reality, just playing itself out, its appearances arising and dissolving, um, it's, it's what's called dry emptiness. And it lacks the moisture of the heart. And it lacks a kind mm-hmm. of body wisdom that really can navigate in a way that brings healing to ourselves and others. Mm-hmm. So there's a real value to doing the presenting you know i don't like the words be in in the present moment or be present but i like be the presence or bring presence to because that's Mm -hmm. a more active um, subjective understanding of it but presencing with all the layers that appear and versus what's sometimes called premature transcendence where we just and you can sense the teachers that say all you have to do is see that it's empty just see that don't believe your thoughts just see that it's empty Mm -hmm. And I'm really, I love don't believe your thoughts. That's one of the things I I really try to practice a lot. But then come into the body and have an honest, intimate, awake presence with what's here. Or else it's going to be below the line and end up hijacking us in a much more sideways kind of way. Right. Wow. I mean, premature transcendence. That's that. And and dry emptiness. That, yeah. Wow, I'm just <laughs> I just want to say it so that's that it I've gets in doing. there because it really has been yeah. coming up over and over again and that's so nice to hear that this is um yeah that that that's not just in my own head that there <laughs> No, there there is this, there is a kind of a pattern and a process. There is a flipped side though Val just to name which is people get addicted to processing. And they think there's always more to pay attention to, and I'm not there yet. And that's another delusion, too. Mm. And sometimes just uh, what one of my teachers says, just dropping, you know, like, just drop it all, like everything. That's like no deep thoughts. No deep thoughts. One of our mantras is no deep thoughts. Yeah. Sometimes we take, we take breaks. We take whole weeks. We love talking we... about this stuff, and sometimes we just go, stop, just stop. <laughs> and those are some of my favorite times. Yeah. I love putting all this stuff in there and knowing it's in there. And then when you drop everything, it's still a, it's still in your marrow. You know what I mean? I, I, my, I was going to ask you about psychedelics and when I take psychedelics, whenever I go to that place, I go, it matters. Like filling yourself up with all of this wisdom matters because 
when the axe hits the grindstone and the sparks fly up, the sparks are informed by what you were filling yourself with in a psychological way. And I think in a spiritual way, my, my epiphany is always like, it's not quite right, but it's so adorable how close we could get. Like, it's like the, the effort was beautiful, even if it'll never be the absolute mystery. Mm, mm. Um, that was my last question for you, Tara. Um, just out of respect for your time, we asked for two hours and that's what we're closing in on mm. is um, I was just listening to Terrence McKenna and he was talking about DMT and he was saying that he gave DMT to a very, he didn't say who, but like a very high, high ranking Tibetan uh, monk and that the Tibetan monk, I had never heard this. He goes, Oh, it's the lower lights. Have you heard of the lower light? Mm. I hadn't that it, that it's one of the bardos. So it's one of the, so when you smoke DMT, you have like a complete channel change. You're not here anymore. Uh, You're in a different reality and you're there. They say it only lasts 15 minutes, but the catch is that it's timeless. So it doesn't really matter how long it is on earth anyway. So you're in this other place. Um, and he said it's it's one of the bardos. So when you die, you go through the bardos. And the lower lights are as high as you can go while still maintaining a connection to your body. And to go to the upper lights, you have to sever the connection to the body to go any, any further. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, and he said, so w- what the monk said that I wanted to put to you is like, oh, I've seen these all the time. I've, I've visited this place many times. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I don't understand how you're getting there from a plant. That's very confusing. But like I go there, I, I'm assuming he meant through meditation all the time. I was wondering what your what your thought. I know this is we're in like a psychedelic renaissance, so you must get this all the time. But I've gotten a lot of value out of them, um, and I'm wondering what you make of that lower light thing, and if you've. And then really, it's just a it's just a fun question. It's just in the spirit of fun. <laughs> Have you ever been to those bardos? <laughs> Yeah, I have. And um, just to back up a little, it's really amazing how neuroscience is showing that what meditation does is very similar to what a lot of the chemicals do, the plant, the plant medicines, uh, psilocybin, DMT, which is it totally deactivates the parts of the brain that sustain a sense of self. So they're doing the same thing. Mm. And I, I started with psychedelics. I had experiences that I knew were homecoming in some way and then realized that meditation could keep on carrying me. So I completely stopped, did, you know, 15 years, whatever of meditation. And then I gradually began to periodically drop in a, a psychedelic journey here and there um, and have found that the meditation is what integrates it, you know, mm-hmm. and relationships integrate. I mean, meditation and being in, alive in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, and then they can be like a booster rocket <laughs> to, to take uh, these things. And I just did recently a, a consult for a group here. It's fantastic what they're doing. I think it's the first group that's in a hospital. It's an oncologist and his team that are, um, that are offering cancer patients uh, psilocybin and so on. And we consulted about how do you design meditation and therapy to integrate it so that they, because they, they do find that they open to a place that's very fearless because they're not identified with their human 
uh, self-body and they're really trusting and sensing the goal, the unity, the, the oneness. And then, um, and it really affects how they, they, they relate to the disease process and the meditation and therapy are really, I can tell are going to be increasingly important support for it. Mm. So it's, it's really a both end. Mm. He was, Terrence was also, I say Terrence, like I do feel like he's my friend. (laughs) Terrence, Terrence, uh, he was talking about, talk about integration. He's like, a lot of people will have a DMT experience and they'll come back and they won't, it'll be gone. Like a dream upon waking. They won't have any capacity to incorporate it. And I thought that was very interesting that meditation does seem to work that seems kind of grotesque to call it a muscle, but like it helps you. I mean, isn't a lot of Tibetan Buddhism staying calm in a bardo, like, like seeing the impossible and still staying in a, in a center. Yeah. It's in it, the word is getting familiar, which I love mm-hmm. is what you're, and this is with everything. It's like, Anytime I kind of wake up out of a tangle and then it's not I anymore, but there's this field of tenderness and wakefulness, there's more familiarity that that's more the truth of who I am than any story I could ever tell about myself. So those experiences start becoming the reality. In other words, I'm not living in in something smaller. And so that when you get catapulted by you know, one of these plant medicines, there's already some familiarity and it just deepens that process. So for me, um, with DMT, uh, which I've only done a couple of times, it definitely catapults to that total disillusion. There's no orientation or centralization of self. Mm -hmm. And if I talk about it, I can feel it. It's it's kind of a felt sense that's, you know, beyond a felt sense because it can't be described through the body, but it there's access. Yeah. So there's some integration, but I, I think that's just because there was already a level of familiarity. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Having the the reference point, like it's almost like the psychedelics blowing uh a door open, but then you enter the door and you go, wait a minute, I know this room. <laughs> mm. I've been here. <laughs> mm. I, it's interesting. Okay. The, the Christian tradition, when you look at, again, I've been doing reading about Paul. So Paul has a conversion experience. I know you were raised in the Christian church, so you'll probably. No, I wasn't. I was not. Oh, I thought you were. I read somewhere that you were Unitarian, a Christian. Unitarian. Unitarian. Unitarian, which yeah. is supposedly under it's under the rubric, but it's uh, it was very non-theist, um, very social justice and progressive, but not so much about uh, spiritual experience. Okay, mm-hmm. well, even groovier than I gave it. <laughs> but you know, Paul, everybody said you fell off your donkey, the road to Damascus. Like there are all these conversion experiences that. Um, Richard was talking about like, it's so funny that St. Paul and Jesus both became like these um, pillars of the church when both of them were screaming, essentially screaming. It's not about the church. It's about you having the experience. You have to undergo a death and resurrection. You you have to trust your inner authority by having it obliterated by some sort of. So one of the things that makes DMT very interesting to me is that it seems like a conversion experience that you can just sort of 
inhale. I mean, that seems really strange to me. <laughs> and that's the same with psilocybin and others is that it make it's absolutely clear that it's not outside you. There's not somewhere you're trying to get. It's yeah. truly what is. It's isness. Mm. Yes. You just but that, that's it. Even if you go to a place of impossible geometry, the the fundamental phenomenon, which is your consciousness, which is the witnessing presence of whatever you're witnessing, is still there. It's still the main thing at play. Is that the feeling at all? I mean, like you might be seeing a volcano erupting skittles with, you know, <laughs> fairies and dwarves all flying up your, your butt crack in a tickling way. <laughs> But like the main Are phenom- you referring to one of your experiences? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish. I wish. That's basically Terrence says you're he would smoke DMT and he'd wake up basically in a phone booth with elves crawling up his shirt. Oh. <laughs> like the feeling of like elves, like playful, mischievous, loving elves just like crawling up his clothing wow. in a tickling sort of very Celtic sort of like mischievous way. Um so it's just lightly based on that, but still, what never changes is the witness. The everything that happens happens in the field of consciousness of of I amness, right? So it's almost like it doesn't matter what you're seeing; it's that you see what you're seeing with. Is that anything? Um, it's a hard place to go because there was some sense of really nothing there, not even a witness. It was just awareness playing out. And the witness kicked in as the chemical started withdrawing to try to make sense or or name or in some way remember. Um, But there wasn't even the separateness of a witness. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Oh, wow. Let me try that one again. That was gratifying. (laughs) I got a double wow. It's like, I don't know is the answer to that one, how how it reconstructs. So there's some sense of witnessing because in those moments, it everything was gone. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that's where, so you'll drop your body. Do you think you'll find yourself in a space like that? Now we're really ego tripping because we're talking about what will happen when we die. But it, is it possible that you'll be in that bardo and then you'll go to the next bardo and all that sort of fun stuff? I, I, I really, my sense is it is what we are. That that pure awareness that everything arises and, and it's, awareness is waking up to itself. Mm-hmm. And it wakes up to itself through these body minds. When this body mind's gone, there's not there's not an eye that's, going anywhere there's maybe there's just a re re-entering that oneness but there's nothing left you know of a of an ego so now it may be that there's reincarnation there's some subtle patterning that wants to re re you know form itself i don't i don't even that's all ideas for me they're interesting yeah. ideas yeah, <laughs> they they're are, but i i have no idea you know yeah. that's been my belief lately is that pete Pete's, Pete goes away. Like if we did have a glass of water that we call Tara Brock and we poured it in the ocean, we could say Tara Brock is gone. Yeah. And yet Tara Brock has gone nowhere. It's been. Yeah. Really- it was an idea of Tara Brock. Right. Exactly. And that's what Byron Katie would say to me. She's like, what Tara Brock? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a good way to end. <laughs> 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 Tara Brock. Yeah, right. yes. 
We went a little over. Tara, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I, this was so special. The best part, and I wanted to have it again, is just this. It's just this. It's just yeah. this. It's just this. Mm. It just feels really thick. Thank you so much. Um, this is going to sound absurd, but let's lean into it. We have the guest say the catchphrase at the end. It's how we say goodbye. Would you say, keep it crispy? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course I'm going to say, trust the gold. It's liberating. And that being with you two is part of awakening for me, that trust in the gold. I just feel, a, um, you know, just a real appreciation and heart connection. Uh, it's really been one of the most juicy, fun interviews, if we want to call it, ever, that I've had. So I want to that thank makes you. Me happy. Yeah, you feel like friends and you are friends. Well, yes. we hope to meet you in person one day. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so crispy. My ice game make you want to get it.